The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. Okay, so I think that I've shared with you guys over the last, uh, before, but over the last couple of years, um, I have discovered YouTube, okay? Now, I've known about YouTube for a long time, um, but it was really more of like the manual for when you need to repair something at your house. You go find YouTube, and it tells you how to do things. So, but if you didn't know this, it has other things as well. So, uh, one of the things that I love to watch on YouTube are these, uh, these documentaries on people who do ultra runs, okay? So these folks, if you've met Drew Plumley before, he does this too, I don't know, um, but, but they're, they're running distances greater than a marathon. Most of the time it's like 100 miles, maybe 250 miles through these crazy mountain ranges, um, and YouTube allows me to sit on the comfort of my couch, and in, and in 40 minutes... I get to see everything that they do, okay? Um, but, but in thinking about First Peter, and I was kind of thinking to myself about these videos, like, why do we enjoy, why do I enjoy watching these types of videos? What is it? And I think, if I had to kind of put it on something, I think at the root of it all that there's something admirable to watching, some, like, to watching someone endure something, to watching them suffer and frankly, to watch them achieve something that's insurmountable in my mind, right? This insurmountable goal, to see them achieve it and receive the reward at the finish. I mean, there's just something admirable about that. I mean, isn't that also the plot of like every good movie you've ever seen? You know, so right now my family's watching through Lord of the Rings. And you've got this, yeah, I hear you, Ben. Um, and you've got this hobbit, Frodo, uh, who endures this this long, arduous journey in order to complete the task that no one else seemed to be able to do. And at the end of it all, he receives his rest, his glory, his completion. Sorry for the spoilers, Piper and Gabe. Um, but have you ever thought, like, why is it that nearly every good thing in life comes from effort and suffering? That there's something about this motif that just resonates inside the core of every human being. And I think that at least part of the answer is that the theme of suffering and glory is woven into the very fabric of God's redemptive story. Suffering and glory. This is a theme we, a, a theme we see throughout the New Testament. And we're going to see it especially in 1 Peter. And frankly, we've already seen it in the first nine verses that we've looked at. So the last two weeks, we, we've learned that Peter is writing to a group, group of Christians who are exiled. They're scattered across the remote areas. But these aren't just people that are scattered they're also people who are beginning to be tested. They're beginning to have trials, and they're beginning to suffer. Trevor, last week, if you, if you didn't listen to it, or if you weren't here, you should go listen to it, but he did an awesome job just describing this wonderful hope that we have as Christians, this wonderful salvation that the saints have in Christ, that the Christ was raised from the dead, and in his resurrection, he guarantees for us an inheritance that is undefiled. It will not perish, an inheritance that is kept for the saints, that's guarded for the saints. And this is our salvation today. So as we pick up this week, Peter, he's really just going to further explain elements regarding this very salvation. So as we read through these passages, verses 10 through 13, I'm, I want us just to focus on two things initially. The first thing is that the prophets 
inspired by the Holy Spirit, foretold of the Christ. They foretold of his suffering and the glory that would follow. And second, that this salvation, this inheritance we have, it is so wonderful that even angels long to look into it. So let's read in verse 10, 1 Peter 1. Concerning this salvation, so all these things that Trevor talked about last week, verses 3 through 9. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now, I don't know about you, but I have struggled uh, over the years to, um, I guess, enjoy, relate to, understand uh, the Old Testament. It, It often, to me, seems very distant. Right? Like I'm, I'm not a Jewish historian, so many of the stories I read, frankly, they don't seem a whole lot different than Narnia or Lord of the Rings. But here's the thing. One of the elements of the Christian faith that is so incredible is that thousands of years before Jesus, before the Messiah comes, there were men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit predicting that one would come. These prophets were men like Moses, David, Isaiah, Joel, Daniel. We could go on. These men spoke of the one who would come and suffer, but in his suffering, he would usher in a future glory. They didn't always see it clearly, right? That's what Peter's telling us here. They kind of see bits and pieces, but they were searching and inquiring, trying to understand what is the Spirit telling us? These aren't just stories. It's not Narnia. It's not Lord of the Rings. This is history. And the Apostle Peter here, he is particularly attentive to our knowing that the prophets were in many, and possibly in most cases, referring to Jesus in the time in which we now live. We can see this, uh, I guess, hermeneutic throughout the New Testament. We could go to a lot of places, but I think about Acts 10, verse 43. Peter, the same Peter that wrote this epistle, he says to um, the people, he says, To him, that is Jesus... All the prophets, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Same in Luke 24. Uh, You might remember the story of the road to Emmaus. So Luke 24, Jesus has already been raised from the dead. The tomb is empty. And there's these two followers of Jesus walking along the way. And uh, there actually is some reason to think that one of these followers might have been Peter himself. We don't know that for sure, but it's possible. So these two followers are walking to the village named Emmaus, and Luke tells us while they're walking, Jesus draws near to them, and he begins to travel with them. It says that he um, blinded their eyes so they didn't, did not recognize him. So they're walking down this road, and these two followers start talking about Jesus. Got to be ironic a little bit um, for Jesus to be right there. But they start talking about really how bummed they are. They're like, man, we thought he was the one, but he died. He was supposed to be the one. He was supposed to be the one to fix all things. That he wasn't the king that they had thought him to be. And Jesus finally, as they're, I think they're sitting around or they're, they're traveling along, verse 25, Jesus finally tells them, he says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now listen to this. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Suffering and glory. And then hear this. Jesus says, beginning with Moses 
and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So as we work through our Bible reading plans or we pick up and read the prophets, we read the Old Testament, we need to understand that in many cases they are foretelling about the coming Christ, about his suffering and the glories to follow. Just a couple of passages. you got Psalm 22, David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you remember those words? Psalm 22, he says, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. Remember Jesus' thirst? You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count on my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, he had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, that he was stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Centuries before the coming of the Christ, Isaiah sees it, partly. So Peter wants us to know that concerning the salvation, the prophets, they're prophesying about the coming of Messiah. They're prophesying about the suffering and the glory. Second thing I want us to look at here in 1 Peter is that this salvation, it's so wonderful that even angels long to look into it. So if you'll remember our study in the true story of the whole world, we talked about the turning point of the ages. We talked about this time when the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. We looked at several different references in the New Testament that talked about the privilege we have, us here at Ridgewood, on this side of the resurrection. That with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we exist in a unique period of history. The New Testament writers refer to this as the last days. But we here um, in the last days, we have the new covenant blessings that the Old Testament saints did not participate in. And I think that's what Peter is saying here when he says that the prophets weren't serving themselves, but they were serving these New Testament saints. They were serving us. Verse 12, he says, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So it's revealed to the prophets that they weren't serving themselves, but these saints. And that the apostles have actually continued the message by the power of the same Holy Spirit. 
We know that the Apostle Paul actually planted churches in these areas where the exiles are. And so these apostles are carrying the message of salvation to these saints. It's, it's these new covenant realities that angels long to look into. Hebrews 1 tells us that the angels are all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who would inherit salvation. Listen to that. Angels are ministering spirits. What are they to do? They are to serve those who inherit salvation. The redemption we experience at the end of all things is something unique to the sons and daughters of the king. We know that creation will be restored. We know that creation will be redeemed. But the redemption, the inheritance we have in this room, if you know Jesus, is unique to us. It only belongs to the adopted sons and daughters. And angels long to look into it. So what do we do with all this? What are we to take away from understanding that the prophets have been foretelling that, that the Christ for thousands would become, would be coming, that the salvation he brings is something that angels would long to get a glance at? I, what are we to do with that? I think Peter tells us in verse 13, he says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there's three actions we can take here from verse 13. The primary command in this verse is actually the end of it, where it says, set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed. But there are two, let's call them, just because I don't know how else to say it, subordinate actions that are also given to us. One, of preparing your minds for action, and two, of being sober-minded. So the main command is, set your hope fully, but you also must be preparing your mind, and you must be sober-minded. So let's just walk through each one of these um, and take a look. One, prepare your minds for action. In the Greek, that literally translates to having girded up the loins of your mind. The image here is a man in long flowing clothes, tucking in his clothes and his belt so that he can run, respond, and react. He's prepared. So in order to set our hope fully on the grace to be revealed, we must prepare our minds. We must be ready. Not to get into Aaron's sermon next week, but in verse 14, I think, Peter's going to comment. He says, you used to follow the lust of your flesh in ignorance. The Christian who has experienced this wonderful salvation that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, they do not settle or live in ignorance. But instead, they prepare for action. Another example of this is actually in Luke 12. I don't know if you remember the parable here in Luke 12, but this is when Jesus is telling his disciples, and it's interesting, he actually specifically interacts with Peter in this parable. Um... And, and, and Jesus tells the parable of, of the master who goes away, and he leaves his servants in charge. And Jesus praises the servants who remain vigilant, who remain prepared, who anticipate the coming arrival of the master, the return of the master. But there's another servant, and Jesus says he doesn't stay prepared. Instead, he drinks. He mistreats his servants. He assumes, master's not coming back anytime soon. I'm okay. I got time. Remember what Jesus tells the disciples about that servant? He says he will be severely beaten. I actually read one person that said there's really not language strong enough to describe the adverb of severely in the English language. He then goes on to say, to whom much has been given, much will be required. You know how Jesus starts that parable? So like, he kind of gives the main idea, and then he gives this parable to help explain it. 
In verse 35, he says this, before the parable, he says, gird up your loins for action. I have to think Peter remembers Jesus' words when he's writing this letter, and he's telling the Christians who are suffering, going through trials, gird up the loins of your mind, prepare for action. Just trying to think of just a couple practical items for us here today when we think about preparing our minds for action. Two things. First, read the book. Read this book. This book was not written for PhDs. It's not written for seminaries. That's fine. But it was written for you and me. Read it. Ask God to help you if you don't understand it. He will teach you. Ask your peers. Ridgewood has been wonderfully blessed with men and women who love and know this book. Ask. So here's something practical for you. If you're not following already a consistent reading plan or if you struggle like me just to, to get any sort of rhythm or routine going, First Peter has five chapters. Can I challenge you to read a chapter a day, Monday through Friday, every week during our series in First Peter. Just do it on repeat. Read First Peter over and over again the next couple of months and see what the Lord does. Read the book. Prepare for action. Second is this, um, be careful with technology. I think most of us are in this boat, um, but what you put in your mind is what you will think about, it's what you will love, and it is what you will hope in. Put the phone down. I'm preaching to myself here, all right? If you've hung out with me, I'm totally guilty of all of this. So this is for me. But put the phone down. The mindless scrolling, they're actually proving now it's physically damaging to you, okay? But also, it just numbs your mind with the influx of information. Our minds are to be prepared. They're to be sharpened. They're to be trained, not to be dulled. I'm not saying you can't look at your phone, but, but do look at your screen time alert. I don't know about you. I don't know if this is across the board, but mine comes every Sunday morning. Whew. Um, yeah, I got one this morning. Um, don't waste your mind. Prepare it. Prepare it for action. Second command we're given here in First Peter is to be sober-minded. Peter just assumes a state of sober-mindedness, right? Like in the verse he says, being sober-minded, set your hope. So it's just an assumed state of how we're supposed to be. But what does that really mean? Like what does it mean to be sober-minded, Paul Tripp had a helpful thought on this, and, and his, helpful thought was, uh, his helpful thought on this was describing what sober-mindedness isn't, all right? So hear this, <clears throat> sober-mindedness. It's not the lack of, of ability to have fun or to laugh or the absence of a sense of humor. We are not Eeyores in this life, okay? That's my quote, not Paul Tripp's. Um, Sober-mindedness is not taking yourself too seriously. Sober-mindedness is not being legalistic and judgmental. It's not reaching a state of theological always-rightism. Sober-mindedness is not being one of those scary, unapproachable Christians. Sober-mindedness is living with a single-minded focus. In our recent equip-intensive seminar that we had, uh, we talked about the traits of a disciple. So, The pastors over the last year or two have been working on this document 
um, just to try to hone in what are the qualities and traits of a disciple that we want to see here at Ridgewood. We could list hundreds of them. So we say, like, if we can't do them all, like, are there a few that we could just kind of lean into and own? And one of those traits, and Trevor named it very aptly, um, is to live skillfully. Being sober-minded means to live skillfully. It's someone that understands the realities of this world, its fallen nature, its lack of ability to provide ultimate hope, and it's someone that knows how to navigate that fallen world. They know how to navigate it well, wisely, and in a way that honors God. They, they understand the world, but they're not shaken by the world. They're in it, but they're not of it. We had a picture when I was growing up hanging in my house, and uh, it was this you know, kind of portrait thing you get from Crossway um, back in the day. And uh, you guys know what I'm talking about. So, um, dude, I don't know. Um, maybe not. So, anyways, the picture was like this, this storm-tossed sea. You know, it's real dark, and the waves are crashing. And in the middle of the portrait, there's this lighthouse that's sitting there, standing tall. The beacon is, is blasting, right? And you can see the chaos all around it, but the lighthouse is there. And I think in some sense, that's what it means to be sober-minded, is in all of the chaos of the world that we all see and we all feel in all manners and respects, be a lighthouse. Don't be moved, but be the beacon of light. Understand how to exist in the world and navigate it without being shaken by it. So prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. And finally, let's look at the primary command of this verse. Verse 13, at the end. It says, To set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. John Piper um, said that biblical hope is not a mere desire for something good to happen. So it's not like, oh, I hope we can go to lunch, or I hope I get this job, or I hope, I hope. It's not kind of this whim that we think is floating out there but he says this biblical hope is a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future hope is a confident expectation and I think here in first Peter Peter is wanting us to put all of our confidence to fully hope in the grace that will be brought to us all of your confidence all of your hope is focused and centered and anchored by the grace that will be revealed But what grace is this? What is the grace Peter's talking about here? What is this anchor that we put our hope in? Well, I think it's the grace that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks that we talked about last week. You think about it. I saw actually in one of his sermons, John Piper did this as well. But you just walk back through these first 12 verses. Verse 1, since God has chosen you. Verse 3, since God has caused you to be born again to a living hope. Verse 4, since God is keeping an inheritance for you, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Verse 5, 1 Peter 1, since God is protecting you through faith so you won't lose that inheritance. Verse 6 and 7, since God is refining your faith by fire so that it will receive praise, glory, and honor. Verse 8, because of God you are swimming with strokes of love and faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 10 and 12, since the prophets and angels are on their tiptoes to see all that God's grace will do for you. This is grace, brothers and sisters. This is the unmerited favor of the sovereign king of the universe. Can you fix your hope on that? Can you say in that moment where everything does seem dark, 
that on Christ the solid rock I will stand. All other ground is sinking sand when all around my soul gives way. He is all my hope and stay. And I think that's part of what we're to take away here as mature Christians. That as mature Christians, we need to be able to zoom out of our own realities and see the bigger picture. We go through very hard things in life. Some of you have gone through harder things than others. Some of you are going through very hard things right now. We have folks I can think about right now that are homebound because of serious health issues. We have folks whose marriages seem like they're hanging by a thread. We have people in here wondering about the next paycheck. We have people here who are looking at life and struggling with reality that the days ahead of them are less than the days behind them. We have families struggling with infertility. We have people that have lost family members. We could go on and on and on about the pain that we all feel. And it's easy in those moments to be consumed by your circumstance. Right? When you're suffering hard things like that, it's like every time, everywhere you look, that's all you see. It's all you can think about. It just kind of sits on you. Perhaps we lose sight of the bigger picture. The bigger reality, and that reality is that there is a grace that is going to be revealed to us. There is an inheritance preserved for all of us. And, and, and the thing about it is, like, it doesn't make your situation easier. It, it doesn't make it painless. But I don't think that's the aim. The aim is to find yourself in a position where your hope is fully set on the grace to be revealed to you. We sing a song here. It's one of my favorites. It's the words, what is my hope in life and death? Christ alone. What is my only confidence that my soul to him belongs? Who holds my days within his hands? What comes to me? What suffering, what trial do you experience? What comes to you apart from his command? And what will keep you to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. And I love the chorus because it sings, we sing, Oh, sing hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Suffering and glory. We can sing praise the Lord in our suffering. I mentioned earlier that uh, the kids and I have been watching Lord of the Rings. And uh, if I'm going to be honest with you, um, I'm going to hear a groan from over this side of the room. Um, I fast forward through all the parts with Sam and Frodo, okay? It is the most boring part of the movie, I know. Lord of the Ring is Gandalf, we all know, and so just focus on him and Aragorn and you're okay, all right? Um, but, but, since it's the kids' first time through, they can make their own decisions after this, um, I am forced to watch all of it, okay? And uh, so we just, we, we just finished The Two Towers the other night, and, and Sam gives a speech, if you remember, the Lord of the Rings fans will remember this, but if you're, you haven't watched in a while, I didn't know this existed, actually. Um, and so we're, we're sitting there watching it, and uh, this is not in my notes, but um, Sarah and I just look at each other, and it was like, oh my gosh, I've been trying to figure out how to preach this sermon, and Sam just did it in like one minute. Um, and uh, so here we go, right? Let me read this for you. Now the context here, if you're not a Lord of the Rings person, 
is there's just complete chaos in the world. And it's kind of an interesting like scene in the movie because um, the, the city they're in is being overrun, like people are running everywhere. And the way the camera kind of works, like it just, it kind of freezes time for a moment. So it's almost like Sam is just suspended there speaking to Frodo about this. And he says this, I know it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end, because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, the shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't, because they were holding on to something. And brothers and sisters, I think the message of 1 Peter is hold on to something. Hold on to the grace that awaits you, to the glory that awaits us all. Suffer well. So we're about to take the Lord's Supper. And the call this morning uh, for the person here that doesn't know God. And, and what I mean by know God is not that maybe you will acknowledge that he exists. When I, talk, when I mean know God, I mean do you love him? Do you follow him? For the person that does not love God in this room, the call for you today is to repent and believe. This wonderful salvation, this glorious inheritance, it is for you if you believe. If you repent of your sins, turn away and find Christ. Please find me, find Trevor, find any of the pastors, the friend that brought you or invited you. This salvation can be yours this morning. There is grace and forgiveness ready for you. So if that's you this morning and you don't love Jesus, pass on the table and take Christ instead. For brothers and sisters here, who do love Jesus. Each week when we take this, and you probably noticed we've been taking it every week uh, since Advent, um, and we plan to keep doing that. And one of the reasons, there's a few, but one of the reasons is because it just is a moment in the service for us to pause. For us to pause and remember that Jesus Christ fulfilled everything that the prophets foretold. That passage in Isaiah 53, the Lord crushed him for you if you know him. And I think it's worth taking time each week to just sit for a moment with that bread and that juice to remember the body and the blood that it took. We sang my favorite hymn uh, this morning, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. And I've always said that verse, and if you've heard me speak before, I've probably said it a thousand times, but the verse where it says, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose its evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Every time you've sinned, it required something to pay for it. So the Lord's Supper is a moment for us to just pause and to reflect on the body and blood um, that it took to save us. So brothers and sisters, as you take this morning, be reminded of what it took. And may your heart be filled with joy and gratitude. Uh, let's pray, and then I'll give some further instructions on the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
you are the one that holds our days in your hands. And you are the one that we can put all of our hope in. And Father, I pray for the saints here at Ridgewood Church that we would be a people with our hope fully set on the grace to be revealed. That we would be single-minded in pursuit of loving you more and more and more. And Lord, I pray for all those in this body that are suffering. Lord, would you help us to do it well? Would you help us to zoom out, even if just for a moment, to see the bigger picture? To see that in the midst of all this chaos, you do not change, you do not move, but you actually care for us. You watch over us. You don't sleep, you don't slumber, you are always there, and we can look to you. And help us to be steady when the trials of life come our way. And Lord, uh, help us to fight, our, um, to, to fight against our sin, to put it to death, that we might honor and live lives um, that bring glory to you. And as we take of the supper, Lord, may we just pause and reflect on the body broken for us. And Father, for those who don't know you, Lord, we do pray that your spirit would cause them to be born again, that their eyes would be open to see the beauty of the Lord in the land of the living. And would you do this for us this morning? We praise things in your name.